Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 2, Episode 18. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Steve, you spent decades with, uh, as part of your career with department stores. And, and when I think of department stores, I think about uh, fashion, and I think of apparel, and I think of beauty, and I think of footwear. But I, I think of them in a very conventional sense. In other words, as menswear and women's wear. It feels like that department stores over the past, I don't know, 100 plus years, are pretty much the same. If you walked into one today and you walked into one 100 years ago, the structure would be the same. I'm, I'm not sure they've kept up with the changes in society. A lot of the changes have certainly been incremental. I mean, I think if you think about department stores, they're called department stores because they have departments, which is right. both a physical manifestation that we're all probably pretty familiar with, but it's also, at least in my experience, an organizational manifestation. You have mm-hmm. a buyer for Missy's, you have a buyer for men's sportswear, et cetera. And so that, I think, that that physical structure, that's organizational structures, made it very difficult to respond to a lot of consumer changes. But certainly, as we'll talk about with Rob, there's very much this, you know, men's versus women's versus kids kind mm-hmm. of setup. And within kids, as we got into with Bridget Brennan on a episode last year, just how uh, brands and retailers have conventionally thought about men's versus women's, you know, pink for, for girls, blue for right, boys. Right. You know, a lot of these really kind of anachronistic ways of thinking have still, for the most part, not evolved very much. So, uh, yeah, it's a real, it's a real challenge. It's been slow to change, and um, we'll get into with with uh, Rob Smith from the Fluid Project some some different ways of thinking about that, both in terms of customers that are customer segments that are neglected, uh, perhaps underappreciated, but also mm-hmm. represent an opportunity to uh, to develop some upside business and just fundamentally to to treat people as they want to be treated. Well, you know, I like I like picking up on that last point. I really like and think that retail, given you know, a the number of people it employs across the world. You know, in Canada, it's the number one private sector employer. You know, millions and millions of people in the United States, probably number two or three. I, I think retail as an industry has an outsized influence and i would say as well responsibility for you know both reflecting and and being an important factor in change and that could take on a number of different elements but it it, it can be a very important connector and it and can be a win 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 scenario right in other words we can reflect society we can be more inclusive and we can sell better cuz we think people are looking for those and you know, you could actually i feel you can move the needle move the line if retail gets involved like almost no other industry. Well, to your point, when you think about the sheer numbers of, of folks that work in the retail industry, when you think about the important brands, whether we're talking about the manufacturer brands or the retailers themselves, we think about retail as such a big component of local communities and the tax mm-hmm. base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a powerful force on, on a lot of dimensions. And so... Uh, the more, the more that the industry as uh, an organized body, we're going to have Matt Shea from the NRF on, uh, I guess uh, next week. Um, yeah, week, week after next action. Yeah, yeah, week after um, next. You know, there's there's a lot of different ways that society can be made better by virtue of organizing collectively to do that, but also what brands can do and model for for others uh, and reflect in their employee base. 
Well, speaking of, of powerful and change and comprehensive, uh, all those words and many more come to my mind uh, after we had the, uh, the, our ch- chat with our, our great guest. Um, tell the listeners all about it. Yeah, well, we've got Rob Smith from the Fluid Project and Get Fluid on. Uh, as I mentioned in the interview, I first saw Rob speak at Shop Talk about three years ago, and not only was I impressed with the business idea uh, and the brand that uh, Rob and team were developing, I just felt like he was such a powerful mm. and articulate spokesperson for a movement for for purpose. So, uh, so delighted to have him on the podcast to tell us how he got to where he got to and where he is going with with the brand and the business and some of the diversity, equity, and inclusion training they're doing as well. Yeah, such a veteran retailer as well, including we share, we both worked at Levi's, but, uh, you know, senior, senior positions in retail. So both brings that intersection of the personal professional and really brings it to life in this interview. So, uh, so let's have a listen. Well, we're delighted to welcome Rob Smith to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, we've uh, actually, this has been a little while to get there, which is mostly our fault, but we've wanted to have you on the podcast for some time. So I'm glad we finally made it happen. Um, What we love to do when we get started is learn a little bit about you, your your journey to your current position and any other kind of color commentary you might want to provide. And then we'll, we'll dive into talking about the fluid project. I'll, I'll start with like just how I ended up in retail, which was an absolute fluke. Um, but I ended up, you know, with an accidental interview and ended up going into retail and spent 30 years in traditional retail, 22 years at Macy's, two years of Victoria's Secret, and then five years with Levi's and Nike, uh, creating kids clothes, basically globally, um, overseeing that. And then I decided to find my purpose in life. <laughs> look for look for an altruistic uh, reason to to live my dharma, I guess, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I quit my job, threw in a backpack, and decided to travel around the world and discover what the world had. And, and I wasn't sure what I was going to come back with. I kind of thought I was going to be a politician, but uh, through a shamanic ceremony, I decided to, uh, the fluid project came to me as, as an idea of, and it really, it's emerging of my profession, which is retail, my passion, which is social justice. Mm-hmm. And through that merging of the two, uh, the fluid project was born, uh, and that was born on April 17th, 2017. And I opened the space March 1st, 2018. So happened pretty darn fast. Would you be willing to share a little bit about, about, to bring my own stuff into this, I mean, I, I ended up leaving a big corporate job, partially, uh, you know, somewhat similar reasons, but I, I was finding that big corporate cultures were becoming very stifling for me. And probably more of it was, um, you know, to feel like I could get more done generally. Uh, my, my more purpose-driven stuff started a bit, bit later. But, but can you just, are you willing to reflect a little bit on your your corporate time, what was good about it, what was bad about it. And and then maybe we'll, we'll kind of shift more specifically into the fluid project and what that's about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, um, I was very lucky that I was able to get to the part where I came out of the closet and I was living in Miami at the time and I became a bit of a, a rebel and I wore makeup and would pierce my ears and refused to wear a blazer and, 
And, uh, but I was really good at what I did and they put up with me and tolerated me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Macy's continued to tolerate me. And, and, uh, I'd say it was a bit of a maverick at the company and, you know, was the opposite of the way everyone else looked and acted. And, and yet they kept promoting me, promoting me and promoting me. And at a certain point it was, you know, there was think considering putting me in the C-suite and they hired a career coach for me or a, a speaking coach, but it wasn't a speaking coach. It was actually a coach to tell me how to dress, mm. how to, mm. how to be, how to blend in and showing me how all the rest of the C-suite looked. And, and I was wearing, of course, like a skinny suit and a hot pink shirt and a Gucci tie and pointy shoes. <laughs> which is probably not scared. the West. Which is probably not the rest. The way the rest of the <laughs> it is not the way everyone else looked. Especially I don't know. Was, I mean, I could see Terry Lundgren rocking that look. 100%. Terry was, you know, a sharp dresser for sure, but more, I would say, Armani than uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then what I was, the, what I was rocking was just probably uh, Dolce, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah. So anyways, I, I decided that I probably had gone as far as I could at the company. I had a great experience. I, you know, launched employer resource groups. I led, you know, I was mentoring lots of young people. I, I really was, I really was in a groove there and, and appreciated everything I had, but, um, there was a time to move on and I went to Victoria's secret. I wanted to learn vertical. I wanted to learn direct to consumer. And I did learn that I, I didn't like the culture there, to be honest, it wasn't mm-hmm. a good fit for me culturally. And then I went to uh, a family business that was able to bring all this knowledge I had and experience to a really thriving or a potential business of a family business, but they only knew, you know, family business, third generation. So I brought structure and discipline to that business and, and the business, we had a road to a billion dollars, and they told me this year they got to a billion, which was pretty exciting. Mm. About two years after I left, or three years after I left, so that that felt good to know that uh, that strategy worked. So, how much of the fluid? Pri- I mean, as you said earlier, I mean, some of it was uh, you know to be more purpose driven. I, I you know I I get that. It sounds like you know you get to express yourself individually more completely. How did the, uh, the specific idea coalesce and, and at least tell us what, what the fluid project was at the outset. And then we'd love to talk about how it's evolved. I, I, I was living two separate lives. I was living that retailer during the day and that social justice person at night. And uh, it wasn't until I was, you know, alone in the Amazon <laughs> sitting with myself and, and this idea of like, wow, kind of came to me, came to me through a, a really cool experience. Uh, I'm not sure I, I you know, I'm going to go too deep into that, what that was, but, um, but I couldn't wait to bring it back to life. I couldn't wait and just to, to make it happen. And, and I literally did it with all of my own money. I couldn't, I shared the idea with some folks about this gender free store grounded in community built on activism and really grounded in values and inclusion and, 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 um, and then an education platform as well. Trying to, I wait for people to educate. And, you know, there was a, we had a social code in the store and it was, you know, we're all students or we're all teachers. And mm-hmm. I became a student there, uh, for two years as the store was open every day we had events, we had 250 events in two years. And I was able to listen and learn from young people, sit through these panels and observe and learn. And I started as I became a student, and I, then I became a teacher, you know, started to speak to corporations and travel around the world and speak at conferences and learn about this new generation. And it was, it was incredible. I still continue to do that, but the store was an opportunity to, for me to just sit there and absorb 
and, and one to like take an abstract idea and to make it tactile, you know, for people mm-hmm. to say, what is gender free mean? And they'd walk in the store and they kind of get it. They go, I got it. I got it. <laughs> they leave. And right. yeah. And it's not, it's for certainly for non-binary folks, uh, gender expressive folks. Um, you're talking about David Bowie, like, you know, the way David mm-hmm. Bowie would have expressed himself differently, you know, not in a typical, you know, normative way, like the way we would expect a man to dress. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then there's, you know, trans folks and queer folks. And at the end of the day, it was really for everybody. You know, it's, it's really an opportunity for everyone to be curious and playful and say, Hmm, that sounds, I never thought about trying that on, but maybe I will because you weren't crossing over into this other aisle, this other section, which is almost like a taboo right. for anyone to do that of one gender to another. So from a, a moment of inspiration in 2017 to a store opening in 2018, uh, a lot of evolution has felt like it happened to the brand. Take us through that a little bit. I mean, you you mentioned you had a store that's that you had and then closed. Perhaps that was related to the the pandemic, or maybe it's the evolution of the brand because you've got some depth of experience in DTC. But take us a little bit through that, and take the listeners through if they're standing in your store. How did how did you approach the merchandising? Some of that practical stuff, but then also this this evolution of the brand in your mind. I mean, you you may have been early, but you seem very timely right now. So talk about that and how it's evolved and how in some ways society's evolved, not evolved exactly, but caught up in some ways to the concept. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the store, the curation of the store was fun. I I went to a trade show and I realized really quickly how binary it was and how there's men's and men's looks this way and women's looks this way. So about half of the product in the store I created myself, Mm. you know, it was through fitting and and, uh, and putting in a male and a female fit model and creating, you know, products that were created by us, designed by us, right. I mean, some, a team that I put together. And you're basically creating a whole new category. So I imagine walking the trade show floor wasn't wildly productive. So it was not productive. <laughs> I literally like circled Vegas for, for four days during magic and walked away with almost basically nothing, you know, color, color, with some of the relationships I had. Hmm. And I merchandise stuff together from the men's and women's line, like from Levi's and from Fila and from champion. I was able to, you know, kind of make this really cool collection of, of mixing men's and women's together. And that was, that was neat. And also about a quarter of the store was pop-ups. Uh, it was young designers mm-hmm. and we would do a profit share. And so there was a really cool fashion element that changed out every 30 days of pop-up. So it, it had a cool artsy feel as well as a commercial feel. And then, uh, and then a feel of the, you know, just t-shirts with really great messaging, po- powerful messaging. And so it was from a product standpoint, it was, and there was certainly beauty and shoes and, and fragrances and, uh, accessories. And, and it was just, it had, it had everything. It was like a little mini department store except for home. And it, it had all of it, all the elements in there. And it was fun to curate it and, really make it look special. And so, yeah, so we opened up and, um, people started to notice uh, that the press was unbelievable. Mm. (laughs) There was so much press that, that, that store generated just by the sheer existence of it and curiosity. And then, uh, and then to have all these events and collaborations, it just kept generating more and more and more news and awareness globally. Uh, it's pretty, pretty terrific. And, all of this was done, you know, like I said, I, I never had an, an investor just did it with my own money. And, um, 
And that was, you know, that had trying times, but certainly mm. I, no one's worth telling me what to do. And no one could see the future the way that I saw the future. I yeah. saw this as the future. And the plan was to open up 13 of these stores around the world. And that was my initial business plan. And that, that shifted. Uh, but any, any, any decent successful entrepreneurs knows how to pivot and take an idea and just keep pivoting, uh, and, and follow, follow your instinct. How much of you the wonder- physical retail plan was affected by COVID though? So no. So actually I closed December 31st of mm-hmm. 19. So, um, oh, okay. I was for, fortunate for sure, uh, with three months afterwards, you know, the, you know, the pandemic hit us yeah. and I would have been devastated financially to have had that, uh, real estate, yeah. um, their responsibility. So, so, you know, just goes to show you when you're, I, th- I think, you know, if you believe in a higher power, believe in mm-hmm. something that, that there, it, it closed at the right time for the right reason, because this, 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 um, this idea is, you know, been gifted to me and it's, it's my job to see it through. And, and, uh, the idea isn't just really selling clothes, but, you know, changing people's minds and perspectives and opening them up a little bit. Um, so it's a, it's a brand with a purpose, that's for sure. And, and, and a mission. Well, you talk about purpose and mission, Steve, uh, in his book frames, it also is uh, from a retail perspective, a special, not big last week we had on, um, the CEO of Voodoo Donuts from Portland, right? And there, and he came from the Starbucks world and, you know, opening thousands and have one on every corner, not the objective for Voodoo Donuts. And it doesn't feel like while you want this message to go global, it doesn't, it feels like you're there. You're special, not necessarily big. Is that how you think or conceptualize it? Or do you ever see a, do you ever see a shop and shop in Macy's with the fluid project? Like tell, talk about oh. Well, how do you see, see this evolving? I see this as world domination. Special and big, Steve. Steve, it's a new chapter. Special <laughs> and big. Why can't it be both? See, I'm very binary exactly. in my thinking. In, in a very <laughs> yeah, Steve, I, and I'm not proud. I, of that. I, I want to. Um, I, I want to show up um, with with intention. I want to show up with credibility. I want to show up with um, purpose. You know, I don't want to be splattered everywhere. You know, um, we've got some really interesting partnerships going on. So I'm beginning the conversations of a special partnership with target, starting with education. And we've got mm. product in 1900 of their stores right now for pride, which is pretty cool. And, right. um, working with Nordstrom, I'm launching, uh, accessories and apparel collection this, this fall. And it's, uh, called a green label. It's sustainable. It's upcycled, uh, product dead stock, uh, that's been repurposed and it's, so it's, yeah, so it's a completely, uh, gender free, earth friendly, responsibly made collection. And I'm now starting to pitch it to, uh, European retailers. So mm. there's a chance that this brand will in the next, uh, uh, 12, six to 12 months be, um, both in the Americas and, um, overseas, which is exciting. And then Sephora, we launched the fragrances in Sephora.com. I'm hoping that the fragrance will continue to expand in this, um, world global, global platform. So, so yeah, I see, I see the brand showing up, um, it's in 5,000 stores right now, which is pretty incredible and blows my mind. Wow. And, uh, I see the brand continue to be more, um, yeah, maybe less doesn't need to be 5,000 stores, but really showing up well. And, and with purpose, with the, with companies that are moving forward and being progressive and, and the companies that I'm working with are progressive thinking and they're, they're embracing this, this, 
this brand for what it stands for. One of the things I love, and I'd love to come back a little bit on, on a strategy point, but, uh, and I'm sure you won't remember this, but I, I believe I saw you speak at shop talk maybe three years ago. I think you're on a, on a panel talking about the fluid project. And the, the thing that really captured my, or the things that really captured my attention, number one, I definitely got a sense that you were, you know, this was sort of your mission. Like you had found this, this purpose for yourself and, and that was guiding you, which I thought, thought was, you know, awesome. You don't often hear people talk about that. Um, you know, the, you were being more true to who you were, which is also awesome. So I think, you don't hear a lot of people in retail say that publicly, which is, is tremendous. But I also felt that you had really uncovered, you know, kind of, as you were talking about earlier, just, you know, this gap in the market, the so-called, as much as I hate this term, you know, the so-called white space where you have this customer insight and uh, a realization that there just wasn't a good product, good, a good branding experience, et cetera, for, you know, consumers that have spending power and just aren't having their needs met very well. So, so I'm curious when you, when you start to talk to some of these retail partners, uh, you know, there's this element where, I, which I think is great, where we're seeing a lot of companies get behind diversity, equity, and inclusion, sustainability, you know, these sort of higher purpose ideals uh, but sometimes that feels to me a little bit like it's it's PR, it's marketing, right? And then there's the business part of it. Is this a real significant mar- market opportunity to really be intensely customer relevant for a significant set of consumers? Uh, how, how do you? I mean, that was kind of a rambly question. I realized, no, but, no, you know, it's, but it's like, how do you question. sort sort through all that? And and in terms of getting traction with wholesale partners, and if you ever do come back into a retail format. How, how do you think about the business part of it versus, versus sort of the, the higher set of, you know, higher, higher goals, higher purpose? Yeah. So it's such a great question, you know, right now, because of financial reasons, I'm probably over distributing the brand and, and writing on this wave of inclusion and diversity and, you know, writing on that, you know, the, the plan is to scale that back when I have, you know, more financial, you know, uh, better financial situation. And, um, and then one of the things that I've created in the last year and a half, and it's really starting to ramp up is I've created a get fluid, which is gender expansive training. So I'm training companies how to prepare for a gender expansive workforce. So ultimately my goal is that, and as I work with companies, the companies that I choose to wholesale to will also be trained and educated at the same time. So it becomes a 360 degree, you know, uh, relationship. So we're training corporate employees, we're training store employees and we're selling products. So the, the, the entire corporation, like someone like Nordstrom or Sephora or target is, uh, not just selling the product, but they're also, uh, they're also, you know, doing the work from the, 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 the core of who they are. And, uh, and how their employees are as well. So it becomes mm-hmm. uh, the safe and affirming space that we created the fluid project exists at, at other retailers as well. And right. to me, then it's the, it starts to like expand and, and, and comes across like with authenticity and with integrity. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting approach to this kind of global domination as you described it gently. Um, in other words, let's cover all aspects of the brand. You're really stretching the brand. Is that how you see the evolution? Like if you and I were standing talking together a couple of years from now, is that, is that how you see the brand evolving? You've talked a lot about what's next 
uh, for you and what's next and what's happening today. So it feels like you've got great momentum in, in these overall brand uh, directions, including the merch, which is fantastic in, in that many stories. Is, is that kind of sum it up or is there, yeah, is there something yeah, think- left? To sum it up is, is is continuing to find new marketplaces, the right partnerships in those markets to show up with education, to show up with product and product creation, to each one of them special and unique and mm-hmm. serving serving their servicing their customers and and then pushing down these like, you know, boundaries, these um these like uh spaces we've created that are specifically male and female and creating spaces in between it, whether it's for a, a young adult or it's for a parent who's trying to raise their child mm. without traditional uh, gender norms, you know, these uh, gender expectations of girls are going to be this way and boys are going to be this way. And there's more and more parents who are trying to raise their kids without this blue truck and this pink sparkle, you know, dress. Mm. And they're working really hard to try to find product to, to right. fill that gap and that need. And, mm-hmm. Fluid is going to not just you know, is going to come in and it's going to help create that that product in that space. Do you do you see a flagship store fulfilling a role, or is that you know skip by that and have this gathering place that isn't necessarily a store? Do you see that somehow in the future? You're clearly getting wide distribution, which elevates and accelerates the the, the knowledge of of the brand and the concept and and your mission. Really, what you're yeah. describing. Yeah, I mean, I always like flagship stores because. Fluid is more than just selling product. It is education, but it's mm-hmm. also community. And for right. me, it's important to have a, a place that community can come together and also create content. You know, it's everyone thinks about, you know, what a flagship store is. What a flagship store is for me is, is, is a community gathering place, mm. a place that is could have a coffee shop, but also, you know, converts to like a, a cocktail reception at night or a panel discussion and a place that you can just create content. And what's so important now is any business owner knows content is key. Just creating content, content, content. If you have a flagship store, you can put money into that. And that just becomes the place where all the content is created for all the social platforms. I, I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this many times on the podcast that as much as there's this narrative of the retail apocalypse, we obviously see plenty of retail stores being open. But I think the other thing is this big this realization perhaps of the role of the store being different, right? Not just a place to go see stuff, buy it, take it home, but to your point, you know, be able to do other things from a community or content experiential standpoint. Um, what one, I know we're coming up on our time, but, but I'm curious is going back to something you said earlier about, um, you know, and I don't, I'm not necessarily trying to get into any, any secrets about how you're financing this, but I, I'm curious as you think about expansion, do you see a conflict uh, between what you want to achieve from more of a purpose mission side and how that might interspe- intersect with what investors might want from an ROI standpoint. I, and I'm thinking about this. I have one company that I've advised that's doing quite well, but they have a big social impact part of their mission. And a lot of their investors have said, well, you know, you could really expand your gross margins if you were to make this stuff in China. And the CEO rightly said, well, except that that's totally against the purpose of our brand. So, yeah, we could, yeah. Uh, but then we wouldn't be what we are. And uh, I realize that's not directly equivalent to, to your situation. But, but do you, is, there, is there tension there between the, the pure kind of financial dynamics that a lot of investors want to see to get big, quick, uh, and, and some of the, the, you know, I would say much more elevated goals that you have. 
Yeah, listen, there's tension all the time. There's tension between the retailer there and and the price, right? There's tension between, you know, um, there there's not investors at Fluid, but there will, hopefully will be one day. And if anyone's listening would like to invest in Fluid, I'd, I'd you know, love to have a conversation. But right now, um, you know, the tension is is me. Is yeah, you're right. Is the brand manager and the brand director of you know making good decisions, but sometimes if you're working with a retailer and they want the t-shirt to be 12.99, you're going to have to ensure that it's, it's made overseas, but it's, it's, uh, you know, there are factories that do, you know, good jobs, a really good job of, of, uh, creating product and taking care of their employees. So, uh, just cause you know, just, it just, you have to do the work. You have to find out that there's compliant factories and, and you're not, um, you're not working. And, and I think working with Nike and Levi's, I learned about that. I learned about the supply chain. I learned about, you know, how to find factories that are, if they're working with Nike and Levi's, I can assure you that they're doing the work uh, to be compliant. So, um, yeah, so there's ways to do an expensive product to do it right. Do it, is, that the, is that the best way to do it? <laughs> so I'd rather use repurposed, uh, you know, recycled like T-shirts with plastic in it and, and it's cost mm-hmm. a little bit more and hopefully – more and more people are willing to pay a little more for um, for repurposing. Well, it Rob, it's, it's it's been a a great exploration of both uh, your background, your brand. I mean, you're really the epitome of of this intersection. I often find, and Steve and I often talk to people where they intersect their personal and the professional lives. Uh, you're you're pretty much the epitome of that. So, thanks so much for sharing. Thanks for your yeah. success. I just I do want to say that I, yeah. I, I, I listen to a. Um, Morning meditation is about living your purpose and your mm-hmm. dogma. And I was, mm-hmm. and after I finished, I was thinking how many people would be like, God, I really hope, really wish that was me. Like, how do I get there? And I felt so fortunate this morning that I am living my purpose right now. I feel like every day I wake up and I'm doing what I love to do, which is retail and fashion and now education and make an impact and, um, and, and getting to, you know, open people's minds and hearts and just feel like the luckiest guy in the world right now. Well, I share that because you joined us. Thank you for joining us. Um, <laughs> and, you know, no, little, no, literally, it's great to hear your story, and it's a, it's an interesting story from a whole bunch of different uh, perspectives. So, thanks again. Uh, wish you continued success, and we'll do our part by. Uh, hopefully, lots of folks will listen to the uh, listen to the podcast, and then I, I'm sure it'll resonate with them. So, thanks again for joining. Yeah, check Steve out, and check I. out the Fluid Project with a PH stands for balance. So, check out uh, the Fluid Project, and um, yeah. Check it out and shoot me an email if you've, uh, let me know what you think. I'm pretty accessible on every platform. All right. Right on. Opportunity. Right on. Michael and Steve, I appreciate it. All right. Welcome to another edition. Welcome back, I should say, to Remarkable or Forgettable. Steve, it seems like deja vu all over again. Analysts, earnings, analysts get it wrong. Blockbuster earnings. What's going on? Well, Let's the talk analyst about thing, I, I still am mystified. Uh, we had, I don't know, eight or nine, ten big retailers report their earnings in the last week. And I believe in every case, they yeah. beat analysts Yeah, by, by a long shot, both on the sales yeah. and earnings side. So it is remarkable that I guess we listen to yeah, these yeah. folks anymore because they don't seem to have a good idea of what's going on. 
or have a calendar handy, or, or like to have the, they, maybe they don't have I a don't calendar know, or handy. Their abacus about last shop, year. Or, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. It's hard. To, it's hard to explain. <laughs> uh, and we're not going to do a TikTok of uh, or yeah. whatever that expression is of uh, each of the earnings. But there are a couple I thought were interesting. Nordstrom. The story was that they really underperformed, uh, and I think this was because we saw a bunch of department store apparel retailers report, and many of them had you know 60, 70, 80 percent increases in Nordstrom's was much more muted. Mm. I didn't find it particularly surprising because I think the the higher end retailers, you know, the retailers that are selling products to to go out, to go to more formal events, th- those kinds of things. I mean, clearly those sort of wearing occasions, as we say in the biz, have not really returned quite yet, mm. as opposed to those that are selling athleisure, casual, you know, yeah. that 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 sort of stuff. So that wasn't particularly I mean, I think that that right. story was forgettable. I think Nordstrom, Neiman's, those sort of retailers are going to have some positive comparisons uh, as we go forward, but I'm not sure it's, they're really going to get back to where they were for you know at least another six months. Let's talk about Saks and their announcement about their marketplace. So they uh, they didn't take your advice. They did divide the company. <laughs> they haven't paid my invoice uh, for that advice two. either. Uh, so I guess... So what, what now they're up to like another step in the rapid evolution of the luxury business uh, marketplace. It seems I, I'm generally pretty negative. Uh, so I think it's pretty forgettable. Um, I, marketplaces for this sort of retailer, I think, have to be pretty incremental. Uh, you know, I think it's nice to offer this wider selection, and certainly you can leverage traffic that you get to maybe sell some additional items that you don't have to have the inventory carrying costs and all that kind of stuff. But when you think about the sort of brand that Saks is, you know, which is built on experience and personal service, having a bunch of other stuff that's going to get drop shipped from some company to me is not especially compelling. So nice incremental opportunity in terms of whether this really makes a big difference in terms of their strategic positioning. I think it's totally forgettable. Let's talk about private label, private brands at, at Target and uh, uh, BBB. Um, remarkable or forgettable? I mean, it's, private brands aren't new, but they seem to have a bit of, I don't know, rena- yeah, is Renaissance I, the wrong I, I'm word? A, I'm a little bit on the fence in terms of, uh, I don't think this is forgettable, but you're absolutely right. Private brands are not new. Uh, I think from a Target perspective, they're really leaning into this very hard. They've consolidated some of their bri- private brands, and they keep announcing, it seems like, more investment behind mm-hmm. private brands or uh, partnerships with relatively narrowly distributed brands, like some of these date, uh, digitally native vertical brands. So from a Target perspective, it's not especially mm-hmm. remarkable, except I think strategically, particularly when you compare it to what Walmart is doing, you know, this is a big point of differentiation. And I, and I think they're just kind of, you know, stepping on the gas right. for that for bed, bath and beyond. Um, they've been going through this big Renaissance under, under new leadership. And the news this week was, was a bit more about what they're doing with private brands. And what's remarkable here, I guess, I mean, it's remarkable that bed, bath and beyond mm. went so long without having a compelling private brand strategy. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Really, when you think about yeah, that's fair. how how much of a of a playbook uh, this has become for retailers for decades, but also particularly in this environment when you're trying to avoid getting uh, you know uh, comparison price shopped on on Amazon or or other places. So so I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll see how much traction it gets, but uh, certainly for Bed Bath and Beyond, this looks like a core piece of their strategy going forward. 
Um, let's talk about Google announced they're going to open their first store. My first response was, it's not their first store. I was in their store that was, I guess, a pop-up yeah. in, in Soho a couple of years ago. Was, I guess somebody else snuck another playbook out and said, let's open stores. Well, I, I do certainly don't think it's unexpected, right? So from that standpoint, it's forgettable. Whether this is really part of a bigger strategy, th- that's the thing to watch. I kind of doubt it. Um, my dream, though, is that I just organize like 100 people to walk up to the desk there and just say, you know, what's the best sushi place near me? Like that's, that's, you know, that, I don't think that's what it is. is. That what the story is? I think it would just be funny to like hide a camera and just have people do that and then have the, yeah. the sales associates want to strangle you. But, uh, but it, it'll be interesting to see how this has yeah. manifest. I mean, Google does, they're, they're trying to double down on, on, on shopping. They have some products to sell. So interesting, probably not a, a major move to, to, you know, spend that much time paying attention to. All right. Last, but uh, maybe least uh, gap and Walmart team up. This feels like two people walking down an aisle. One person's got a piece of chocolate. Another person's got a <laughs> peanut butter and they bump into each other at a corner. Like I don't, I don't usually say these two in the same sentence and now they're building product for home. Like, like one, one of the uh, great understand. headlines. Well, it wasn't specifically a headline, but just kind of the take on this was that, you know, gap brings cool to Walmart. And I'm, and I'm like, um, <laughs> huh? Uh, I haven't um, thought about Gap being no? cool for, yeah, I was going to say, I was kind of like flashing back maybe, to my high school years or something. And, um, of course, Gap is very well known yeah. for their home products. So <laughs> forgettable. I guess let's just cut to the chase. I, what I think this speaks to, kind of even going back to the private brand discussion with Target and Bed Bath & Beyond, is so many retailers need to find that point of differentiation with their product offering. And in many cases, it's kind of like, you know, even though that didn't work out so well, what we did with Land's End at Sears, you know, how do you get a brand that's well known, that's not mm-hmm. widely mm-hmm. distributed or, or not mm-hmm. distributed in this sort of channel to bring you traffic, bring you a little edge, um, you know, not, not able to be price shopped at Amazon or, you know, so strategically, I kind of get it. Uh, I don't get gap and I don't get home in kind of the same sentence. So forgettable is my, my official pronouncement. Well, all right, let's leave it there for a somewhat baffling, occasionally baffling episode of Remarkable or Forgettable. All right, Steve, take us home. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our guest interviews and insights, and new episodes will show up every week. And please take a minute to drop us that elusive five-star rating and tell a friend in the retail industry. I'm Steve Dennis. The expanded and completely revised second edition of my best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, is now available at Amazon, Indigo, bookshop.org, or just about anywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael Blanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast, and you can learn more about me on LinkedIn or on melablanc.co. Steve, have a safe week. <laughs>